Welcome to the uh, LSE. I'm glad we could uh, make it despite the uh, tube strike. So I'm Wouter Den Haan. I'm the director of the Center for Macroeconomics. And this is the fourth lecture in the CFM lecture series where we address uh, what we think are important topical uh, aspects of uh, today's economic development. So videos of those previous lectures, they are available on the website of the center. So that's www.centerformacroeconomics.org.uk. And before I introduce this evening's speaker, a couple administrative comments. So please put your mobile on silence. I don't think there's a hashtag for the event, but you can always try the hashtag of the CFM Macro Twitter. Um, the lecture will be you know, relatively short, so you guys will have lots of time to ask questions on everything you ever wanted to know about monetary policy. Is that right? <laughs> okay, you may want to sort of keep it uh, somewhat uh, relative to the lecture. Um, okay, so now it's my pleasure to introduce my uh, colleague, Kevin Sheedy. So Kevin got his bachelor's from the LSE and his PhD from Cambridge. He's an expert in monetary economics, and although he is quite young, he already has a publication in the American Economic Review, which is one of our you know, top academic journals. He has worked on several aspects of monetary economics, like the persistence of inflation, which is a tough theoretical problem, on the impact of monetary policy, and he has provided a theoretical underpinning for nominal GDP targeting. And this evening, he's going to talk about monetary policy during the financial crisis. So please join me in welcoming Kevin. Uh, thanks, Vata, very much for that generous uh, introduction, and welcome to this uh, lecture. So central banks have found themselves in a new world of monetary policy, the uh, financial crisis of 2008 threw up unprecedented challenges of scale uh, and the novelty of the problems uh, they faced. And these central bankers, cautious people by nature, found themselves thrust into the public spotlight, found themselves experimenting with new tools and strategies. And this lecture is going to look at this unusual and um, perhaps disturbing outbreak of creativity amongst the world's uh, central banks. So, of course, we need no, remind, no reminding of uh, the problems, the scale of the problems that central banks faced in the uh, Great Recession, the uh, scale of the declines in GDP, the nature of the problems in the financial system threw up these unprecedented challenges for policy. The response of central banks uh, in terms of their uh, conventional policy instrument, the uh, short-term nominal interest rate, can be seen in this, in this picture for the major uh, central banks, the ECB, the Bank of England, the Fed, uh, the Bank of Japan. And those interest rates started out relatively high, so there was quite a lot of room to cut. But in the space of um, several months, interest rates rapidly declined towards uh, zero uh, and um, could, of course, go no further. Japan, of course, was a somewhat special case, already having experienced these problems uh, in an earlier decade. Um, it had made a tentative exit from the zero lower bound uh, before. It made another tentative exit, and like the other central banks, it was thrust back towards uh, zero during the financial crisis. 
So why is this a problem? Well, we could ask what interest rates would be needed given the scale of the challenges on the slide previous to this one. Well, we could look at what does a conventional monetary policy rule have to say about where interest rates should be, something like the Taylor rule, for instance. So this graph shows you the federal funds rate for the US and a fitted Taylor rule using forecasts, central bank forecasts of inflation and unemployment. And you can see that that Taylor rule tracks the central banks, the Fed's actual decisions pretty well prior to the financial crisis. The interest rate drops, as we saw, but then the Taylor rule would say interest rates should keep dropping, um, maybe as far as minus uh, 6%. So this shows the severity of the zero lower bound problem. Now, of course, you might ask, why not just go below zero? Why not have a negative nominal interest rate? Of course, we know in theory that as money is a physical object, the storability of cash puts a zero lower bound on nominal interest rates. But then we might read somewhat strangely that there is discussion by central banks, such as the ECB, uh, that they might consider paying negative interest rates on uh, reserves. Whilst the practical problems in holding large amounts of cash would make slightly negative interest rates feasible, and we've seen them from time to time in terms of negative um, uh, treasury bill rates in the US, it's unlikely this would be a solution. It's not likely you could go down to minus uh, 6%. Of course, some people would say you can solve this problem by changing the nature of money, by going to a purely electronic money where there is no zero lower bound. In this lecture, though, although it's unconventional monetary policy, I'm going to put some bounds to what I mean by unconventional. I'm not going to plumb the the true depths of unconventionality. I'm going to stick with policies that have actually been tried, or at least considered by uh, respectable commentators. Okay, so that leaves us with uh, various kinds of unconventional policies. I'm going to classify them into two categories for the purposes of this uh, talk. The first category, and this is sort of in reverse historical order, in the order they were actually used, uh, is forward guidance. I'll explain what these terms mean in a minute. And the second class of policies I'm I'm going to call uh, balance sheet policies. And that's where we would, of course, file things like quantitative easing. So turning first to forward guidance. What is forward guidance? Well, a general definition might say forward guidance is when the central bank reveals information its information about the future path of interest rates. So, for example, take take the UK, the UK's uh, first stab at forward guidance. So on 7th of August 2013, uh, the announcement was that the MPC intends not to raise bank rate from its current level of 0.5%, at least until the Labour Force survey Uh, headline measure of unemployment has fallen to a threshold of 7%. So until unemployment remained, for as long as unemployment remained above uh, 7%, this was signalling that there would be no rise uh, in interest rates. However, that relatively clear statement was qualified, so things were more complicated than just the first paragraph. There were a series of so-called knockouts imposed on this forward guidance, conditions under which the Bank of England wouldn't follow this rule of keeping interest rates at 0.5% whilst uh, unemployment remained above 7%. Those knockouts were that um, the bank's own forecasts of inflation remained moderate, 
uh, that external measures of inflation expectations were well anchored and that the policy of continuing with low interest rates didn't pose a danger to uh, financial stability as judged by the uh, Financial Policy Committee, the now um, parallel body to the, to the Monetary Policy Committee. So when thinking about forward guidance, conditions under which interest rates will change or won't change in the future, we could imagine central banks going about this in a variety of different ways. They could make it very open-ended. They could simply say that we don't expect any time soon to be raising interest rates. They could make it time-dependent. They could identify some date in the future and say, up until that point, interest rates are going to stay low. Or they could, like the Bank of England did in that example, make it state-dependent. They could identify some criterion uh, that would uh, be either a sufficient or necessary condition uh, for interest rates uh, to rise. So we can imagine forward guidance of different kinds according to this classification. Notice in the case of the Bank of England, the 7% was not a threshold, a sufficient, was not a trigger, uh, a sufficient condition for interest rates to rise. Uh, it was a threshold, so um, it was possible that unemployment could fall uh, below 7% and still the bank would keep interest rates low. So the guidance was perhaps not as precise as it first uh, uh, looks. Now, of course, there have been other kinds of forward guidance. Going back earlier in the financial crisis, the U.S. began with open-ended forward guidance in late, um, late 2008, forecasting that the federal funds rate would remain low uh, for some time once the federal funds rate had got to its uh, lower bound. 2009, the wording was changed uh, to an extended period. The Fed then um, evolved further, if you like, towards time-dependent forward guidance, uh, stating in August uh, 2011 that uh, economic conditions are likely to warrant sufficiently low levels of the federal, um, exceptionally low levels of the federal funds rate, at least until the middle of uh, 2013. This was subsequently uh, extended. So we see a variety of forms that forward guidance uh, can take. So I started this lecture by calling forward guidance uh, an unconventional policy, but you might, really, you might ask, is it really such uh, a novel idea? Well, we actually have the experience of Japan. Japan uh, tried, of course it's famous for quantitative easing, but it actually tried a form of forward guidance uh, back then. Uh, between 99 and 2000, the zero interest rate policy stated that interest rates would remain zero until deflationary concerns are over. That was subsequently abandoned, and we saw that uh, the Bank of Japan had to restart some form of forward guidance uh, again when interest rates again got back to uh, zero. So it's not unprecedented. But perhaps more um, profoundly, if you look further back, even in normal times, you could argue that central banks, through their official statements, perhaps through uh, more, um, more informal um, um, speeches, have given guidance about the path uh, of interest rates. So the Fed has accompanied its interest rate decisions with a statement um, ever since 1999, and that statement has, sorry, ever since 1994, and, that, and ever since 1999, that statement has featured uh, a view of the balance of risks, whether interest rates are more likely to rise or fall uh, looking forwards. Other central banks, such as the ECB, have used a kind of code, words like strong vigilance, to signal changes in interest rates uh, in the future. 
And other central banks have gone even further, publishing forecasts uh, of rates. So the Reserve Bank of New Zealand does this and has done it for a long time. Uh, other central banks like, uh, the, uh, like Norgas Bank have uh, tried this more recently. So in some sense, the idea of using central bank speech to influence people's views of the future path of interest rates is not so unconventional or radical um, after all. So why would it matter? Well, you could turn that question around and say, in normal times, why is it that changing the interest rates of the kind that central banks normally target, very short-term rates, why should that really matter, given that households and firms and the economy have much longer horizons? Households and firms don't want to just know what interest rates are going to be over the next couple of days or the next few weeks or the next month. They want to know what interest rates are going to be for many years if they're going to buy a house or invest in some uh, new machinery, invest in capital and things like that. So even under more conventional ways of conducting monetary policy, it must have been the case that there was more going on than just the very short maturity interest rates uh, being changed. Expectations must always have been there, but perhaps they were implicit, perhaps they were in the background, and occasionally from time to time central banks would give some hints, but uh, this would not be as explicit as the forms of forward guidance tried in the financial crisis. But clearly those expectations should matter because they've mattered uh, in the past. For instance, a bank making a long-term loan needs to think about what the path of short-term interest rates is going to be to understand the overall cost of funding uh, for that uh, loan. So this is all part and parcel of the textbook transmission mechanism of monetary policy. So in that sense, forward guidance is not so unconventional after all. It slots neatly into our conventional thinking about uh, the way monetary policy actually works. The difference, though, is that it tries to take the bull by the horns and affect expectations uh, directly. Now, of course, for forward guidance to have any effect, it's got to provide some new information. You might well provide a statement about what interest rates are going to be, but if that simply confirms people's existing beliefs, that's not going to have uh, any uh, effects. So what is the nature of the new information uh, that is being provided when central banks do forward guidance. So most academic theorists of forward guidance have a particular kind of information in mind when they advocate forward guidance policies. They claim that what the central bank is communicating is a change to its reaction function, the link between economic conditions and the interest rates that it's going to set. The claim is that the central bank can communicate a different reaction function, that it will set interest rates in a different way from how people were previously uh, expecting interest rates to be set. So conceptually, you could think of uh, understanding the academic case of forward guidance in this diagram. So we have some notion of the interest rate the central bank would like, which could be negative. That's the uh, dashed uh, line there. And of course, whilst that is negative, the closest the central bank can get to it is to go down to zero. Once in the future you anticipate this interest rate rises above zero, you might think that the central bank will then follow that and move its actual policy rate uh, upwards. What forward guidance could be doing is communicating that the link between interest rates and economic conditions will change. There is a commitment that even if economic conditions might justify uh, a rate above zero after this point, there will be a commitment to keep the actual interest rate down for, for longer. So a different interest rate path uh, is being uh, announced. 
Why would you do this? Well, the case is precisely working through expectations, working through uh, the link between short and long-term interest rates, the long-term interest rates that actually matter for household uh, and firm decisions. And the idea is that with forward guidance, by keeping interest rates down for longer, you can have a flatter yield curve that um, at long maturities, interest rates based on expectations of short-term interest rates over that horizon, now uh, that average is going to be lower because the rate stays low for longer. So that would be the academic interpretation of forward guidance. There's a commitment to a different type of policy, even if economic conditions would not warrant following that policy actually in the future. So policy becomes history-dependent. The past starts to matter for the actual interest rate decision, even if those past conditions shouldn't really play a role in a forward-looking monetary policy at that point. Notice that the policy is not a panacea. There's a trade-off that you get a better economic performance now, arguably by giving more stimulus, but notice that when you have to follow through on this commitment in the future, that's going to make uh, outcomes worse in the future when interest rates are no longer right for the conditions then prevailing. So given that theory, we might wonder whether actual interest rates and people's expectations work in the way that this uh, theory suggests. So what is the empirical evidence that central bank um, forecasts or central bank statements can matter? So we don't have a lot of data given the, the novelty uh, of forward guidance. So one approach has been to try to go back and argue that central bank announcements were actually playing a role in normal times, where we have much more data and try to learn something about the role of forward guidance, the ability of forward guidance to affect expectations uh, from that. So there are several academic studies that, that try to do this, using data on federal funds' futures, various maturities to measure uh, expectations, looking at how the prices of those futures contracts change in relatively narrow windows on a sort of intraday basis. So uh, minute by minute, they're changing, and then there's a statement how does that market price react in some narrow window around that statement? Now, of course, in the past, most of the time, central bank statements were communicating changes in actual policy. So you might ask, if in the past uh, statements happened at the same time that interest rates were changed, is there really anything in those statements to tell you about what people should be thinking about future uh, interest rates? The various studies have argued that there was more to these statements than just making the announcement of the current policy decision, that there was information content for future uh, federal funds rates. This so-called path factor uh, would be the forward guidance that we've seen under past uh, ways of conducting monetary policy. So one uh, of the leading papers in this area separates news about monetary policy into changes in the target, the current interest rate, and news that affects the path of uh, future interest rates as measured from these federal funds' uh, futures. And you see that as monetary policy becomes more open, as uh, the Fed starts to reveal more information, historically it had been very um, reluctant to make public statements about the stance of monetary policy. As you get into the 1990s and 2000s, things become more transparent. There's more information there. We see more and more uh, news about future interest rates. 
Researchers have also confirmed that during the financial crisis itself, uh, many uh, Federal Reserve statements were associated with changes in this path factor and were also associated with changes in uh, uh, Treasury uh, bond yields. However, you might wonder whether central bank statements alone really tell us something about the kind of forward guidance that has been practiced uh, during the financial crisis. So what about these explicit statements that central banks have made that interest rates will stay low until 2014 or stay low until uh, unemployment uh, falls below uh, 7%? Maybe the information content of central bank announcements in normal times wouldn't give us a good guide to how things will work uh, in abnormal times. We can look at some episodes of explicit forward guidance of the most up-to-date kind, um, I'm going to show you some two well-known examples, one from uh, Canada, one from the uh, United States. This looks at a specific announcement and looks at the effects on um, overnight index, overnight interest rate swaps uh, on a sort of intraday basis, so looking at minute by minute what's happening, what happens at the time of the announcement. So the Bank of Canada made a statement on the 21st of April that it is lowering its target for the overnight interest rate by one quarter of a percentage point to a quarter of a percent and saying it doesn't think it's going to go any lower than that. But then it goes on to say, conditional on the outlook for inflation, the target overnight rate can be expected to remain there uh, until the second quarter of 2010, so about a year in the, in the future. So committing to keep interest rates low, subject to the inflation outlook not being too adverse uh, for at least a year. So what effects do we see? So this uh, graph shows you uh, on the day of the announcement uh, the different um, prices of these um, different interest rates uh, inferred from these um, overnight interest rate swap uh, prices uh, and how those change at this um, vertical dotted line when the announcement itself uh, became public. So we see this is plotted for a range of different uh, maturities. So you've got everything from six months uh, through to one year. So one year was the horizon of the, the commitment in this case. So what do you see? Well, obviously, this was not just forward guidance. There was a policy change on that date. And unsurprisingly, the shorter maturity comes down in line with the uh, new policy, now at a quarter of a percent. But also notice that the long maturity uh, interest rates have got... Uh, closer to the shorter maturity one, or in other words, the yield curve is getting uh, flatter. So arguably, there was more to this announcement than just the uh, policy change. There seems to be some content to the commitment to keep interest rates lower for longer. Taking an example from the US, um, in August 2011, uh, of course, at this point, interest rates were well at the zero lower bound, and there was no change in the federal funds rate at this time, the committee made its first time-dependent announcement that it anticipated economic conditions are going to warrant a low level of the federal funds rate, uh, at least through mid-2013. So that's two years, roughly two years, uh, in the future from this, from this announcement. So what do we see? Well, if you look at a similar type of graph, now extending the maturities through to two years, you see very little action on the shortest maturity, perhaps unsurprisingly given that interest rates were already very low and not expected to rise on a six-month horizon, but you see that the longer maturity two-year uh, comes down dramatically. So again, there is a flattening or compression uh, of these uh, yields. 
So this evidence does suggest, given the timing, given the coincidence with the um, uh, announcement itself, that is having a causal effect on uh, interest rates, interest rate expectations. Okay, so I think we've seen some evidence to suggest that central banks can reveal information about the future path of interest rates and of particular relevance that they can do it directly, they can make a statement that explicitly says something about future interest rates and see an effect from it. Not always. I could show you graphs where it doesn't work quite so cleanly. The case of Sweden is a case in point where things did not go anywhere near as smoothly as this, but this shows at least the possibility of pursuing such uh, policies. But does it mean, though, that forward guidance is working through the channels that many theorists actually have in mind. Is the information content in these announcements, and there's clearly some information there, is it of the right kind to generate the effects that theorists are looking for? So what's being revealed? What beliefs are changing, and why? Well, if you're going to change your belief about future interest rates, there could be a variety of reasons why uh, your beliefs could change. You could, according to the theory, change your view because the central bank announces it's going to set policy differently. It changes its reaction function, its link from economic conditions to interest rates. Um, you could, and this has been labelled um, so-called Odyssean forward guidance. The idea is that it's a commitment, so like Odysseus being uh, tied to the mast to resist the call of the sirens. Here the uh, siren call is to raise interest rates too soon. Uh, Odyssean forward guidance is to uh, tie yourself down, committing to keep interest rates lower, uh, even if conditions don't warrant it. So that would be the one possible way of interpreting this. But it's clearly not the only one. It could be that the central bank's forecast of future economic conditions uh, has changed. So not the link between conditions and interest rates, but the forecasts that go into the reaction function. You could call this uh, Delphic uh, forward guidance in the sense that it's some kind of prophecy about where the economy is going in the future. For theory to apply, forward guidance needs to work through number one, if it, ha- if it happens to work through number two, it could well be counterproductive. So why is that? So take, for, exam- for example, the Fed's announcement that economic conditions uh, would warrant a uh, low value of the federal funds rate through until uh, 2014. You could see, in a version of this graph I showed you before, where there is no commitment, simply a change in beliefs about when conditions will warrant interest rates rising above zero again. That point gets shifted further back, Uh, It's true, of course, people now believe interest rates will stay low for longer. That's what the evidence from those uh, overnight interest rate swaps uh, told us. But the interpretation is very different. Here it's that people change their views about how bad things uh, really are, rather than believing that the central bank is committed to low interest rates uh, for longer. So for that reason, we might doubt whether the forward guidance examples we've studied really do prove that the theory uh, behind it uh, is going to work, especially, as because, especially because that central banks have been very cagey about actually saying they are making uh, commitments. This has been explicitly, more or less explicitly denied by many central banks, especially the, the Fed and the, the Bank of England. Bank of Canada was, went out perhaps furthest on the limb, saying that its uh, policy was a con- conditional commitment. So long as inflation did not get out of control, uh, it was willing to commit to it. 
However, most, um, not most, but a lot of uh, market commentary uh, and media commentary surrounding forward guidance has focused on this alternative uh, Delphic uh, forward guidance interpretation. For example, the New York uh, Times headline after the extension of the horizon over which the Fed says interest rates is going to, going to stay low, uh, the headline was that the Fed is signaling uh, a recovery as years away. Now, that's a bad thing because um, although people will expect interest rates to be low for longer, on the other hand, they're going to expect economic conditions to be worse, and that's going to reduce their confidence. So you get an offsetting reduction in confidence, most likely the dominant effect, which um, doesn't um, give you the benefit of the uh, low interest rate uh, effect. More systematically, you could also look at this path factor that I showed you before, how that correlates with changes in forecasts of inflation and unemployment. So if you look at the so-called news about future interest rates that the empirical evidence has uncovered, if you look at the correlation of that with changes in forecasts of inflation and unemployment, you find, a, you find something that's quite disturbing for the uh, theorists of forward guidance. Namely, uh, a positive path factor, that's expecting interest rates uh, to rise sooner, that's correlated positively with inflation forecasts and negatively with unemployment forecasts. That strongly suggests that the news about interest rates is coming from news about inflation and unemployment. If it had been the other way around and policy was changing unexpectedly, uh, if it was tightening unexpectedly, you would expect that to be a negative for inflation and, and, and uh, a positive for unemployment. So these correlations don't go the way that's consistent with the Odyssean forward guidance. They go in the direction of uh, Delphic uh, forward guidance. So given those problems of communication, getting the right kind of information across to people in markets, to the, the, the private sector more generally, you might ask what type of forward guidance is the best uh, to go for. So clearly, avoiding this problem suggests that you shouldn't be using open-ended or time-dependent uh, forward guidance. That's most naturally interpreted as a change in central bank forecasts. If you simply say it's going to be another year before we raise interest rates, that's so easy to interpret as things are really bad, I'm going to have to wait another year before monetary policy gets back to normal. If, on the other hand, you try to do state-dependent forward guidance, it's a lot easier to interpret that as a change in the reaction function because monetary policy is being explicit about how it will set policy uh, in future conditions, indicating something that people might not have expected uh, before. Also, the first type of policy is a little bit risky. If you really did manage to make a commitment that was time-dependent, things could easily change uh, between now and then. You might end up with a very bad policy. Uh, State-dependent policy allows you, in principle, to make commitments because they're not unconditional commitments. At least um, you're not going to have a policy that's completely out of, out of step with uh, economic conditions. So as perhaps a result of this thinking, the Fed's forward guidance showed an evolution over the years. It started as open-ended, became time-dependent, then became uh, state-dependent. So a threshold for unemployment was announced, very much like the Bank of England's 7% uh, threshold, in this case uh, 6.5%. It was clarified that that um, was a threshold, not a trigger, so a necessary but not a sufficient condition for interest rates to rise. But then subsequently, the Fed um, got cold feet about relying too much on one indicator and dropped the, the unemployment threshold. Now there's a much less precise, somewhat vague list of all relevant factors. 
So we've kind of gone for a, an evolution towards the kind of academic forward guidance and then some regression away from that, dropping any precise uh, thresholds or triggers. The UK, of course, has gone along a similar trajectory that uh, unemployment turned out to be not such a reliable guide uh, to um, um, the state of the economy falling much faster than, than anyone expected, uh, and then the 7% threshold was dropped uh, from the UK's forward guidance. Like the Fed, the Bank of England has now fallen back on a very long and vague description of all the kinds of things that it will look at, not really, in my opinion, revealing very much information uh, at all. So is there any hope that forward guidance of the kind that many theorists of monetary policy have advocated really can work? Can this commitment, state-dependent forward guidance, uh, really work? Well, it has to change people's beliefs about the reaction function. But if we think the central bank's objectives haven't changed, if it cares just as much about inflation, the output gap, unemployment as it did before, what reason do we have to think that it wants to conduct policy any differently in the future from the way it set policy in the past? In other words, there's a time inconsistency problem, that uh, the commitment now might have a benefit, but in the future you'd like to go back to more conventional ways of setting policy, not worrying about the fact that you had the zero lower bound uh, in the past. Furthermore, if there's no action now, anything that's said could be interpreted just as uh, cheap talk. So there are formidable challenges to making this kind of forward guidance uh, work in practice. Central banks, though, have not emphasized this commitment dimension at all. So you might wonder, perhaps, whether there are other ways you could rationalize a change in beliefs about reaction functions that don't depend on on commitment. Well, perhaps the central bank really has changed its preferences. Then it might not be making a commitment. It It might be putting more weight on unemployment than it had in the past. It might be aiming to return inflation to target more slowly than it had in the past. Perhaps the public had got the wrong idea and had thought the central bank was much too hawkish. Perhaps under those situations, you could have a case for revealing information about the reaction function that's not a commitment, but which might still work. However, I have my doubts. It's unlikely in the case of the UK, where inflation was significantly above target throughout the financial crisis period, to think suddenly that the Bank of England had become incredibly hawkish and it had to dispel uh, opinion, uh, people's opinion of that. I find it hard to see how policy is going to work without some degree of commitment uh, being involved. However, we've seen in practice when particular thresholds or targets have been established, like the unemployment rate, they haven't always performed as expected. It's it's proved quite tricky to come up with a a, a correct numerical threshold. Um, I have no answer to how you can improve upon that uh, easily. Notice also that the unemployment thresholds are very high, so the feature of the commitment is to keep interest rates low for longer, but we don't think of 7% unemployment or 6.5% unemployment as the natural rate, Um, so it's not really holding down interest rates uh, for longer than you would otherwise expect. So what alternatives might we have, given the difficulty of resolving this this time and consistency problem? Well, you you could consider, and several thinkers have put forward, alternatives that try to get around some of these problems. One possibility is a target for the price level, or even a target for the level of uh, nominal GDP. 
The idea here is that you get, through this policy, changes in expectations that work very much like the forward guidance, but happen in a more automatic way, and happen in a way that requires central banks to, to jump through fewer, um, go through kind of sort of fewer convoluted loops of saying, in the future we're going to set policy differently from how we have in the past. Could you just not adopt a price-level target or a level target for nominal GDP uh, and have done with it and not need to keep revising how uh, you claim your reaction function is going to be determined? So if you had such a target and a recession uh, occurred, if you had a nominal GDP target, you should expect faster nominal GDP growth in the future, so more stimulus or more inflation in the future. If you have a price-level target and you have uh, low inflation or deflation, then you should expect more inflation in the future. So these changes in expectations would work very much like the forward guidance, with the advantage that you're using the same reaction function at all times. You don't have to tell people you're using a different reaction function in the future from what you have done uh, in the past. So in my opinion, the academic literature at least, facing up to these uh, practical problems, the, the link between those two points us towards this type of policy rather than the forward guidance that has been tried uh, so far. So in summary, uh, there's a clear justification in theory, one that sits very comfortably with how we think about the transmission mechanism of monetary policy, but it's not the one that central banks have emphasized, and there is this tricky problem of commitment. It seems the commitment problem is fundamental, that central banks may lack the institutional technology to make commitments. They make decisions by committee. How does the committee today bind the committee in the future? The kind of central bank independence we've seen, of course, was designed to overcome commitment problems, to avoid monetary policy being influenced by political considerations or business cycle considerations too much. Uh, but the, the central bank independence doesn't allow us to make the kind of exotic commitments that, we, that, that are called for uh, by forward guidance so easily. Furthermore, forward guidance by exploiting a trade-off, a trade-off between the future and the present, uh, exploiting trade-offs has long been a pitfall of monetary policy. If you look at all the disasters of monetary policy in the past, it's usually an attempt to exploit a trade-off like the Phillips curve. Things work, work better for monetary policy when there's one instrument, one target. At least it's much easier to communicate to people than having to explain uh, subtle and complicated uh, trade-offs. So should forward guidance continue? Should we abandon it? Well, I've, I've given my view about price-level targets and nominal GDP targeting. Uh, and certainly the, the dangers of more radical monetary policy are potentially there in terms of keeping interest rates too low for too long, asset price bubbles, more risk-taking. If there's uncertainty about what's the level of potential output, we don't know how much inflationary pressure is going to result uh, from these policies. If we follow them and, we, and the central bank keeps chopping and changing, uh, keeps revising thresholds, maybe credibility is going to be damaged too much. But some would argue there's still too much uh, slack out there. The output gaps are still uh, too large. So if forward guidance is to continue, I think central banks must make it clearer and they must get to grips with commitment uh, and credibility problems. They are obviously uncomfortable with this. That's painfully uh, apparent. And there's good reason for it, that they don't want to endanger their, their hard-won inflation-fighting credibility. That's what they fought so hard to get, and I don't doubt the importance of that. But we could turn around a famous quote from Milton Friedman. Um, central bankers have always tried to avoid their last big mistake. They're always fighting uh, the last war. I think, if anything, the, the danger is not is being... Um, um, too conservative, not radical enough. I think the case of Japan illustrates the danger of um, uh, not being too radical. Okay, um, I'm probably going to 
overrun dramatically in this in this talk. Um, um, I gave myself the luxury of speaking for almost an hour, but I think Vasher is going to punish me if I if I don't um, uh, wrap up more quickly. So let me try to um, talk about the second uh, class of uh, policies, those involving the central bank's uh, balance sheet. So. Obviously, even if you can't change interest rates, the central bank balance sheet, purchases of assets like government bonds or other private securities, that's still there. And of course, on the other side of that balance sheet, you have the currency and reserves uh, that um, might change when these purchases um, happen. We can look at some examples of how actual central banks' balance sheets have changed over time. Sorry, these labels are a little bit uh, hard to read on this on this particular slide. This is the Fed. Uh, we have the assets at the top and we have the liabilities at the bottom. So you've got the, basically the, the, the cash there. You've got reserves uh, jumping up dramatically down here at the bottom. On the asset side, you've got its usual holdings of government bonds. And then at the time of the financial crisis, you have all kinds of new exotic categories appearing on the, the Fed's balance sheet. As the heat of the financial crisis passed, that uh, evolved towards purchases of two main types of securities, long-term government bonds, expanding the holdings of those, and first, uh, purchases of things like mortgage-backed securities. So that was the Fed's uh, balance sheet. So there were various phases of the expansion. First, the, the, the heat of the financial crisis, the special liquidity facilities and credit programs following uh, Lehman Brothers. Then the main uh, programs of large-scale asset purchases. The first wave buying mortgage-backed securities, the second wave uh, buying government bonds, and then a, a, a sort of third wave swapping uh, long and short maturity government bonds, so-called Operation Twist. The Bank of England uh, has seen a similarly radical change to its balance sheets, though the composition looks quite different from, from that of the Fed. Uh, so on the right scale, you've got this, big, this, this red line here. This is purchases of um, gilts, um, government bonds. And on the left scale, you've got all the other kinds of private assets, commercial paper, uh, corporate bonds. Look at the scales. Left, you've got 3.5 billion. On the right, you've got 400 billion. So the Bank of England has been much more uh, conservative. It's focused almost exclusively on uh, government bonds and much less on uh, private securities. So, what might be the economic effects of these changes in the central bank's uh, balance sheet? Of course, a balance sheet is a balance sheet, so um, assets and liabilities move together. But where are the economic effects coming from? Is it on the side of the liabilities, the money supply that matters, or is it the asset purchases that, that matter? So first focusing on the, the monetary side, the traditional side of the central bank balance sheet, we can look at how the monetary base has evolved for uh, um, the, the Fed and for um, the uh, Bank of Japan on the next slide. Uh, I plot those alongside nominal GDP and uh, a measure of the price level. And you see that there are dramatic changes in the monetary base, not coming from currency, coming from reserves, but those are not associated with any dramatic change in the price level or nominal GDP. Similarly for Japan, which has gone through uh, a quantitative easing episode, reversed it, and started another one, again you see a lot of action on the monetary base, relatively little action on nominal GDP or the um, price level. So it seems that these huge changes in monetary variables don't show up in the obvious other monetary variables like nominal spending and the price level. 
So what's going on? Well, obviously, this is not um, printing money. This, this audience is too intelligent for the slide, so I'm going to skip over it. But um, obviously, this is not printing money and giving it away. So that's not going to be hyperinflation uh, Weimar Republic style. But nonetheless, there is a traditional monetarist argument that there is a money multiplier. Uh, so when you change the monetary base, you should change the broad money supply, and that should work through uh, bank lending. So banks have an incentive to lend out any um, excess reserves. Now, that hasn't happened uh, this time. There's been a collapse in the uh, money multiplier. So the ratio of the broad money supply connected to bank lending um, to the monetary base, the thing the central bank is expanding with quantitative easing, that's gone down dramatically more or less in step with the rise in the monetary base. So these traditional monetary, monetarists, uh, monetarist channels of monetary policy don't seem to have been operative during the period of uh, quantitative easing. And it's perhaps not surprising because the whole liquidity trap argument connected with why there is a zero lower bound in the first place points to the fact that at zero interest rates, uh, reserves, short-term government bonds uh, should be perfect substitutes. So simply swapping one for the other is not going to make any difference. It's not going to lead to any uh, disequilibrium. Intuitively, there's no interest being lost on holding the excess reserves. And especially in the financial crisis, conditions were not very conducive to bank lending. So there simply was no case to expect uh, this to feed into a huge wave of bank lending. However, there is a possibility that things work on the other side of the central bank balance sheet on the asset side. Uh, liquidity trap argument does not say that expanding the money supply and buying long-term government bonds, corporate bonds, asset-backed securities, it doesn't say those have no effects because those assets may not be perfect substitutes for short-term government bonds or, or, the, or the reserves. However, you could claim that even if this type of policy is effective, it's not really monetary policy because you could imagine the Treasury doing exactly the same thing without involving the money supply uh, at all. However, let's, let's put that quibble aside and just ask um, what might be the effects from these asset purchases and is there any evidence uh, in support of it? So what could be the possible effects? One is simply that this is a disguised version of the forward guidance we've seen in the past, that it's simply signaling a path of interest rates. Why would that matter? Well, maybe simply doing something is a way of sending a signal. But perhaps more um, worryingly, maybe the credibility comes from the possibility of capital losses if interest rates were to rise in the future, which would make this policy difficult to reverse if interest rates were put um, up. But the Effects that most theorists have focused on being so-called uh, portfolio balance effects, which work through uh, risk premia. And here the idea is that these assets are not perfect substitutes, and the compensation for holding a risky asset is going to be linked to how much of that you're exposed to. And when the central bank buys risky assets, the private sector is exposed less to them, so it's willing to hold them um, um, at, a, at, a, at a sort of higher price or lower interest rate. That risk is being transferred to the government. Now, you could, you could come up with a sort of Ricardian equivalence argument for why that transfer of risk is kind of illusor, um, illusory, but um, we probably don't take those arguments all that seriously. So there, there seems to be a transfer of risk away from private investors towards the government, and most likely that would matter through uh, portfolio balance effects. Moreover, at the height of the financial crisis, when markets were under such considerable stress, simply the central bank stepping in and providing liquidity might itself uh, have a direct effect. So these are some of the possible channels these asset purchases might uh, work through. So what evidence is there um, on them? Well, there's been a variety of event studies 
ones that try to identify announcements of policy changes of asset purchases and look at the reaction of asset prices of the securities that are being purchased and also of the securities as well in some window around the time of that announcement. Very similar to the effects of uh, the central bank uh, statements that we talked about uh, before. So there's a variety of academic studies that have looked at the effects of uh, QE1, QE2 uh, in the in the US. So taking um, QE1 first, uh, the well-known study by uh, by, by Gagnon et al. Um, basically identifies a series of days on which there are relevant announcements about quantitative easing and looks at how much prices or yields on these uh, securities change over that uh, one-day period and then accumulates them over all the days on which there is arguably some information being uh, revealed. So this uh, graph here shows you the accumulated effects on a range of assets. So two-year treasury bonds, 10-year treasury bonds, uh, then some um, um, agency bonds issued by um, um, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, uh, then the mortgage-backed securities, and then tease out the effects. We've got an estimate of the term premium and also some other assets that weren't uh, directly purchased, like uh, corporate bonds at the end uh, here. So you see the, the largest effects were on the assets that were directly purchased in the first wave of quantitative easing, the agency uh, securities and the mortgage-backed securities. That's where the largest effects were felt. It's true that um, there were also fairly large effects on uh, treasuries, some 10-year treasuries, smaller effects on the shorter end. Uh, what, what explains those effects? Well, most of it seems to come from the, the term premium, suggesting this portfolio balance uh, effect is the, is the operative uh, uh, one, and less through signaling the future uh, interest rates. This um, study, I should have said, is based on changes from one day to the next. You could argue that's much less precise than the minute-to-minute the -minute, uh, event studies that we looked at before. So other papers have tried to extend this and look at actually what happens at the minute the announcement comes through or in the minutes surrounding it. Um, Sometimes the announcement doesn't seem to do very much, like the very, very first announcement. So 10-year treasuries didn't really move very much on the first day quantitative easing was announced. But when it was extended to purchasing um, um, treasuries themselves uh, in March 2009, you saw this dramatic effect. I mean, this, this, is, this is huge. It's going down from 3% yield to a sort of 2%, 2.7% yield. So really huge uh, effects. So it seems the, the effects... Uh, of asset purchases are there. You do see them at the time of the announcement. There is some evidence of signalling, so you can come up with trying to separate this into uh, portfolio balance effects versus signalling effects. Uh, here, here are the yield curves. I guess I don't have much time to talk about these, but in both cases, in both QE1 and QE2, there was uh, some evidence of signalling, but it's relatively modest in QE1 compared to the portfolio balance effects working through uh, uh, term premium that we saw. In QE2, of course, the purchases were focused on government bonds, so perhaps less scope for uh, term premium to be uh, as important, or risk premium more generally to be as important. Uh, the effects in QE2 are much smaller, uh, and most researchers in this area have concluded they worked through uh, some kind of signaling of future uh, interest rates. So that's the evidence, that's a very brief summary of the evidence that, that, that have come out of these studies. The effects of QE1 were large, tended to work through portfolio balance uh, effects. Maybe we can't draw too much 
uh, too many conclusions from that because conditions at the time were so unusual in financial markets. Maybe you couldn't replicate this again if you started buying mortgage-backed securities uh, tomorrow. Maybe it's only when markets are most stressed that you'll find these really large effects. Uh, the QE2 effects, much smaller, and the evidence is saying they're coming from, from signaling. It is worth noting, though, that event studies, by the time we get to QE2, might not be so informative because a lot of the news might have been out there implicitly already. Things were much more surprising when th- this policy uh, first started. So I've presented some evidence that, that, that QE does have effects. Um, those effects are beneficial if you want more monetary stimulus, but of course we always have to compare benefits to costs and that might come from the dangers associated with the exit strategies from these policies in the future. So we've seen that whilst you're in a liquidity trap, expanding the monetary base doesn't generate a surge of inflation. Perhaps if interest rates get back to normal in the future, perhaps if the central bank is taking capital losses on its portfolio, it'll be hard to control uh, the return to more normal monetary policy and inflation could easily get out of, uh, uh, of hand. Central banks would argue, though, that they have the tools they need to deal with this. They can, of course, reverse open market operations. Even if the central bank is technically insolvent, there's no reason in principle it can't uh, do this. It can pay interest on reserves, as the Fed has started to do. It could impose reserve requirements. But I suppose the real question is, will these tools actually be used if this danger arises? These tools would all involve tightening monetary policy. To some extent, quantitative easing asset purchases kind of bake in a monetary stimulus for a long time. It's stickier, it's harder to reverse than just changing an interest rate. It might take some time to unwind uh, these policies. Maybe the Fed will be under pressure not to um, um, reverse it as much as it would like to uh, at that time. So overall, quantitative easing, there appears to have been um, effects, probably because financial markets were so distressed at the time. However, if the effects of subsequent quantitative easing has been through signaling, it's probably not the most efficient way to go about delivering that information. Furthermore, we might worry that quantitative easing risks blurring the line between fiscal and monetary policy. We might worry about exit strategies, even though Japan has already reversed the quantitative easing in 2006 and did it without significant disruption. What are the future prospects? Well, it seems to be that the policy of the past, at least in the US and the UK, there's some talk of it in the Eurozone, but probably cheap talk, uh, Japan seems to be the only economy thrusting on with uh, uh, really aggressive monetary expansion with uh, abenomics. So to sum up uh, this talk, um, I could fall back on the famous line about um, what were the effects of the, the French Revolution? The Chinese foreign minister once famously said that uh, it was too early to tell, even 200 years after the event. Um, I don't have uh, 200 years, but I think uh, it really is too early to tell um, the, the overall success or failure of unconventional monetary policy. I've shown you evidence that it works in terms of asset prices, but ultimately we care about GDP and unemployment, not asset prices uh, directly. We don't have good counterfactuals for what's been the effect on GDP and unemployment. Furthermore, it may be too early to know about any potential costs that these policies have that might still be to come. And what is success? What would, what would we judge the success of unconventional monetary policy by? Well, maybe success is really when we get back to normal, when things return to uh, some semblance of normality. Only then, I would say, that central banks should be declaring mission accomplished. 
um, the temptation to declare it too soon might be all too great. We've seen that danger in the context of uh, Japan. So the, the mission, accompli- mission accomplished banner should remain uh, unfilled for the time being. Furthermore, we don't have in history many examples of economies that have actually come out of a liquidity trap. We have the 1930s, but of course we know how ultimately recovery took place from the, uh, the Great Depression. Uh, we know what happened in the 1940s. Arguably, U.S. monetary policy never re- didn't recover to, to anything like normality until the 1950s. So it, it, it may um, be some time before economies really do leave the liquidity trap uh, behind. However, there's one thing that everyone who's worked on unconventional monetary policy can agree on, which is that somewhat cynically it's provided at least work for economists if it hasn't stimulated job creation uh, more broadly. And on that note, maybe in five years' time when someone else delivers this lecture, we'll have more data and we'll be able to say more firmly uh, what the effects really were. So thank you. Thanks, Kevin. There was an enormous amount of information in a relatively short amount of time. That um, does anybody have questions? Yeah, yeah. Wait for uh, to get the microphone. Uh, thank you, Professor Shi, for speaking with us tonight. Uh, if central banks were to adopt a NGP, in normal GDP regime targeting. Uh, regime, uh, and they were to succeed, is there a risk that they achieve the wrong sort of composition of inflation versus growth, i.e. stagflation? Shall I answer these questions as we go along? Uh, I, I mean, that is a risk of um, following a nominal GDP target. Of course, it logically imp- implies a, a, a negative correlation between uh, uh, inflation and real growth, if you follow it. Um, In another context, I've argued that's a good thing, in the sense that if you want to avoid debt deflation, you might want to do this in bad times. You might want uh, to have higher inflation. Um, Of of course, in the context of um, forward guidance and generating the right expectations about interest rates, that would be an, an undesirable feature of it, and you, you would probably want to try to correct uh, the, nominal, the level of the nominal GDP target for some estimate of potential output if you wanted to avoid uh, uh, that problem. Um, how you would do that in practice, of course, um, I, I don't claim to have a, a policy proposal ready to roll out on how to actually put nominal GDP targeting into practice tomorrow, it would need a lot of thinking about how to do it um, um, appropriately. But it, it, it would be possible to try to deal with this issue of um, adjusting for potential output if that was your uh, uh, concern. The key thing is you have a, a target for the level of something. So to the extent that you fall behind on the target now, whether it's in terms of growth or inflation, that should automatically, to the extent the target is credible, create favorable expectations of real growth or inflation in the future. Uh, real growth, boosting confidence, higher inflation bringing down real interest rates. That would be the the argument. Um, Once you've got to a a situation of stable growth, then you might want to think about um, for the future application of this policy, adjusting it for potential output. Thank you. Just point to yourself. 
Thank you for the uh, good overview. Uh, two uh, short questions. One is, how do you find um, normality? Would you define it in terms of economic performance then, or central bank balance sheet, or whatever, um, interest rates? A second question would be, where do we put this um, forward guidance and all the cheap talk, I would say, around it in the, in the, so in the context of the old discussion of uh, rules versus discretion. I mean, we have had sort of similar discussions before, um, not only between monetarists and Keynesians, but uh, we must have learned something from that. Um, okay, so, so normality, I, I guess we'll all know it when it, when it comes back. Um, uh, I, I, I don't have a, a good definition of what is normal. Um, um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily define it in terms of the central bank uh, balance sheet. Um, it, it would be possible if central banks, say, start paying interest on reserves to maintain large balance sheets in the future and still conduct monetary policy in a more normal way. So there, there are specific proposals um, unrelated, actually, to forward guidance in the financial crisis of having an interest rate set with a floor system where you, will, you always have a surplus of liquidity uh, in, in the system, so to speak. And there's no reason why you can't move interest rates up and down normally so long as reserves are being remunerated. So that wouldn't be one how I define it. I, I think I would define it as... More, more in terms of um, unemployment um, and economic performance more generally. And, and perhaps also financial conditions, so um, uh, risk premium and things like that. Oh, I didn't answer your, I didn't answer your second question. Um, yes, so, so there are many echoes of this, this old rules versus uh, discretion uh, debate, and I think um, a lot of the insights that came out of that Debates show up in the debates on forward guidance as well. Um, my uh, thinking is that uh, the way we dealt with that problem in the past, and the problem, the problem was that um, thank you. The, the problem was that that central banks were perhaps under too much pressure to push unemployment down and growth up. Uh, and therefore they had to be insulated from political pressure. We, it's not that we discovered how to make commitments, it's that we discovered institutions that allowed us to get the same effect, which was insulating central banks from, from political pressures. Now, that doesn't follow that you can then make any kind of commitment. Um, I, I think if we, need, if we want to make commitments like forward guidance in its state-dependent form, where you are explicitly using past, irrelevant past conditions to set policy in the future, I think we need to rethink the institutions of central banks more profoundly because the, the current committees, although they, they're insulated from politicians, they're not insulated from their own concern about inflation and, and unemployment uh, uh, exposed, and they have no incentive to stick to past announcements. Or, I mean, maybe you could argue reputation will do, do it, but that, that was never sufficient in the past. We needed independence. Hi there. Um, I disagree if you keep using the term financial crisis, because I don't think it really covers what really happened. Because in that period, it was a, an area of extreme profit for bankers and their associates. 
not a crisis for them. Any people that ever experience a crisis, it's society as a whole. So I, keep, I think if you keep using the, the financial crisis as a way of defining what happened, then we'll keep repeating uh, these events which keep happening, of these extreme profit-making profit and extreme loss to society. So I think it's a, a very unhelpful term. Thank you. Well, one thing that's, that, that is important, and I didn't talk about it, but I think it speaks to your, your question, uh, are the distributional consequences of the financial crisis and of the monetary policies that have been followed subsequently. And there, there, is, a, there is a case that those policies have had unfair distributional effects, in particular um, the way um, policymakers have tried indirectly to recapitalize the banking system is to make it more profitable. Um, and you could think of holding down interest rates as a way of um, increasing the profitability of... Uh, holding down short-term interest rates as a way of increasing the profitability of banks. So I, I think... Um, those, those distributional questions are very important, and I, I didn't touch upon them in my talk. And, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure I'd, I'd, I'd accept that, that we shouldn't want to avoid financial crises for their more direct effects on things like unemployment and, 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 and growth. I mean, we need to think about both distributional and overall aggregate effects. I was very interested in your comments on forward guidance because you talked about do they work and how do they work and whether they work. Um, but one consequence of both the Fed and the Bank of England trying it last year is we began to feel our central banks weren't quite as competent as we thought. Um, the Fed started talking about tapering and they clearly did not expect the market reaction. Mark Carney starts talking about lower for longer and has to change his mind relatively quickly. So one of the side effects of showing more, which is what the central bank is trying to do, show more about how it's thinking, is that we may realize that its thinking is very bright. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that, that is, I mean, that, that is a good point. Um, it, it's certainly the case that, that they're on a very steep learning curve. Uh, so whenever you get new challenges, you need new policies, and sometimes the first things you try are not the right policies. Um, and I think mistakes are going to be inevitable. And yes, we should worry those mistakes might damage credibility. I, I guess that's what you have in mind. Um, whether that means we should be passive and not want to experiment at all, I think that would be going too much in the other direction. Uh, though I do think it's going to be some time, if at all, before we find a form of forward guidance that's going to be uh, uh, showing central banks in a good light. Because I, I, I agree that the state contingent types of forward guidance, the closest central banks have come to doing what the academics have, have suggested, have been, a, have been a disaster in terms of practical implementation. I think I guess I'll stand up because you can't see me otherwise. Um, so, you know, we don't have a counterfactual to test against, but I guess in the UK and the US perspective especially, we haven't seen the, the extraordinary measures produce the results that we thought they could or maybe wanted them to. Um, and now we're kind of in a position where the macroeconomic variables are not where we expect them to be, but they're still not too terrible. And so we're kind of in this kind of this 
weird valley uh, of low growth. So where, where, where does that leave the, the central banks in terms of trying to hedge themselves against tapering down their extraordinary measures, but also keeping enough air in the economy to grow to get back to its long-term uh, rate? We're kind of in, do, you, do you see where I'm going with that? Uh, so I, I think it's a good uh, it's, it's a good question. Um, you you might uh, think that the I mean of course we we don't observe how bad things would or wouldn't have been had these policies not being being used. But I guess your point is more forward looking than that. It's what we do uh, in in the future, um, and that's where I think. It's important that you don't just have a, an, an unconditional commitment. It's, it's, if, you, if you think there's a danger that things will get worse again, as perhaps they did, if we take, if we take the example of Japan that has tried to exit from uh, unconventional monetary policy on several occasions and then being pushed back, uh, it's important that we have a framework for policy in the future that's able to deal with uh, a possible relapse into the types of conditions we've seen uh, in the last uh, few years. So that's where I think the case for something like nominal GDP targeting would be strong because having a level target for that does provide you with a sort of flexible amount of policy accommodation depending on how things turn out to be ex post. Though I accept it's not a panacea. do you think is actually the audience for this forward guidance? I'm asking this because all the effects that you're talking about and you know what most of us suspect is low interest rates are important for the banks because they still have impaired balance sheets, they need the margin uh, and so you signal to the, the, the that is always was my interpretation you signal to the banks and the financial system that if push comes to shove price stability may be you know, not as strictly pursued as one did it before the crisis and you, you keep interest rates low. Yet then they take as the state contingent indicator unemployment. And so I was wondering to whom do they actually talk with that kind of indicator more or less because of the stock flow dynamic and the margin that banks need. Well the I mean the, the most natural audience for the central bank's announcements, I guess, is always going to be those who are, who are sort of active in money markets. So the financial institutions are always going to be the sort of first people that the central bank is trying to convince, if you like, when it's trying to say that interest rates are going to be low in the future. But, um, I mean, like the, the, the question earlier, I, I, I would take issue with the idea that this policy is intended directly as a way of helping um, um, the banks. It may have that as a side effect. I'm, I don't think that's necessarily the, 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 the intention. And the, the reason for making unemployment the um, threshold or trigger to determine how much of this you're going to do is ultimately because that's, that's the objective that you want to, to meet. And the signaling to the banks and therefore aiming to affect their lending decisions, that's just the means to the end of... Uh, getting unemployment back to, to normal. Okay, two more questions. 
So the experience of modern times has sort of revived the notion of, the sec- of secular stagnation. And so all these models assume that there's a shock, there's a recession, and then at some point in the future, the economy goes back to normal, and, this is, and, the, forward, and, and the central bank commits to lower interest rates at normality. But if, if secular stagnation is true and there's not really a return to normality anytime soon or maybe we have permanently negative interest rates, need permanent negative interest rates, how does the central bank use these policies to get us out of this situation? Can they? So if, if, we, if we really have uh, secular stagnation and... Um, I mean, I know there are some arguments now for why we might get this. Um, it's, it's a controversial position. I'm, I'm not sure I'd go along with it my, myself. If, if that is the problem, I, I think I don't, I don't think it could be a, mon- a problem that monetary policy could solve. I mean, I, I, I don't think monetary policy can be used for sort of permanent stimulus. That's not uh, the way it's, it's going to ever going to work. Um, if we have secular stagnation, we may have to look to... Uh, fiscal solutions or other kinds of reforms to the economy to uh, get us out of that kind of problem. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... Sorry, I don't have more to say about secular stagnation, but I think it's a great question. In the back. Hi. So um, you said that trade-offs are hard to manage. So um, c- central banks are now developing macroprudential toolkits as well. Ways of managing the credit cycle. So, in, in the UK, the Financial Policy Committee may use loan to value caps or capital buffers to manage credit provision. So, I suppose from a, from a governance perspective or from a consistency perspective, do you think that this is too much for one institution almost to handle a central bank to be able to manage these two sets of tools? And, and, and also, in the, in the current conjuncture, do you think the macroprudential considerations, looking at things like house price growth, may be pulling in the opposite direction to what the Monetary Policy Committee may be wishing to achieve in terms of committing to looser standards for, for longer? Yes, I, I would agree with you certainly on the second point. Um, that's just a reflection of the trade-offs that you, you spoke of in, in, in the first. Um, I think whenever you have a trade-off in policy, it's always best to get another instrument. <laughs> If you can, uh, but that's 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 easy to say, uh, and work to develop good macro prudential policy tools might take the edge off some of these trade-offs. However, the, the, the specific trade-off of forward guidance is is very much a, is the subtle future versus present uh, trade-off, and uh, um, it's that that I'm unsure about how we will manage. Uh, we, we we struggle to manage the inflation and employment trade-off uh, well enough. Uh, if we start to have to manage trade-offs like the present versus the future, where obviously there are winners and losers in the real world, and not everyone puts the same weight on both objectives, that's precisely just like with inflation and unemployment, how you get conflict uh, in monetary policy and how that might uh, destabilize and um, lead to undesirable policy outcomes. So I'm, I'm, I'm worried about how we will deal with the trade-off. I mean, I, I don't claim that it's... Um, impossible to resolve it. I think it's challenging, though. I think that the great success of inflation targeting, whilst it was working, was because it was able to convince people there was basically one instrument to do one job, and everything was a means to that end. The level of growth, the level of unemployment, those were all connected to getting inflation back on targets. Everything could be lined up 
uh, in a very simple way. That made it very easy to communicate monetary policy. If you start, have to talk, start, if you start having to talk about trade-offs, things get so much more difficult. Not impossible, but it's much difficult, much more difficult. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you all for coming. Let's thank our speaker one more time.